Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, Victor Minaldo. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good. Good to have you on again. So um, we're going to speak about the economic effects of the fourth industrial revolution today. And... Um, somewhat provocatively um, against the notion that we're in for a um, long time of technological unemployment, you're actually suggesting that we're in for something uh, very, very different, uh, which is a time of a jobs boom and higher pay for workers. Why? Well, the first body of evidence I could produce to support that thesis about unparalleled prosperity increased employment and higher wages would be history. Mm -hmm. And I would just point to the three industrial revolutions that preceded the one we're currently experiencing. And I would probably, well, not probably because I'm doing it, I would tell you about the almost miraculous explosion in productivity, per capita income, wage growth for folks across the income distribution, and then improvements in the standard of living, quantitative and qualitative. And we've done this in prior podcasts. I don't necessarily want to go through the tedious details, but I could just remind folks about the 3,000% improvement in living standards on average since 1820. Yeah, I could, I could remind people that the average wage now is $120 a day in the United States versus about $4 a day in 1820, adjusting for purchasing power parity, inflation, all that. But this but is I, old news, is it not? I mean, this I is old news because we talked about this in prior podcasts, that, right? That's true, right? But I doubt that anyone uh, who's serious is um, disputing that any of this has happened. The question rather going forward is, and you know, a whole host of um, extremely uh, Renovated um, economists has uh, effectively made the case that growth may not be over, but um, economic growth of the kind that the U.S. especially has experienced over the uh, over the last two hundred years is is structurally impossible to continue. People like Tyler Cowen, Robert Gordon, mm-hmm. Dietrich Fallrath, right, are effectively arguing mm-hmm. that you know maybe the U.S. economy is fully grown to a certain extent, and then there's mm-hmm. just not that much productivity that you can really squeeze out of. Um, mm-hmm you know, shrinking population in many respects. Right. Well, total factor productivity, which is what I'm really interested in, and labor productivity as well, but mostly total factor productivity. So how efficient you are converting any input into output, including labor, but also capital through technology. That to me is unlimited potential because it's a function of technology and technology has unlimited potential. If you assume that Investments in basic science, education, and applied technologies, investments in R&D, in other words, will continue at whatever Mm. pace we have. Or even if you need to rev that up, let's say we've reached 
some of the limits with Moore's law, the ability to double the amount of transistors in any given space in a microprocessor. Suppose we've reached the limits at our current levels of R&D. We really have to step up R&D, maybe double it, or maybe get into quantum computing now. That'll be the next frontier in terms of miniaturization of hardware uh, and improvements in performance. I guess I'm assuming, yeah, we're gonna make the investments necessary in those things, basic science, education, research and development, public mm-hmm. and private. I suppose if you if you don't do that, all bets are off. So the, I do have some assumptions um, right. underpinning this stuff. But, but yeah, I assume we can keep moving the pr- production possibility frontier out, 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 and out if we just keep doing what we did historically. Or maybe increasing our savings uh, rate and level of investment because we have reached diminishing returns. And all bets are off, perhaps, if we don't do that. But let's just, for sake of argument, assume that's the case. Is that fair? Well, I think at the very least, it's, it's, uh, that makes it possible to assume or it, that, that it is possible yeah. right, to, to, to have this uh, miraculous economic. Or I, I want to get away, actually, from this uh, notion of economic growth, but rather say something like um, pick up a, a phrasing that you used earlier, which is unprecedented prosperity or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just in, it further increases in human welfare. Maybe even that's more even more abstract, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I think a little bit more tangible for people to mm-hmm. really understand mm-hmm. what w- what it is that you're promising here. But to take a step back, or or I would politely ask you to take a step back and explain to us uh, what exactly is the fourth industrial revolution? Because um, a lot of I think that's a somewhat controversial concept in its own right. So so what exactly is it about this recent and um, you know future technological change that you're promising here? that is really a qualitative break with the past and it's going to um and and why is that going to result in such fundamental economic changes that you're proposing here perfect if you don't mind let me ask you politely to take a step back okay <laughs> and let's do one anecdote not anecdote but one pattern from history so that i can motivate what i'm going to say about that fourth industrial revolution Absolutely, yeah, please. And that is early industrialization in the United States in New England during the early 1800s and give you a sense of the potential mm-hmm. historically. And then we might revisit this example as time goes on. Is that okay? And then I'll, I'll give you my definition of the fourth industrial revolution and what's actually happening and why it's exciting to me. Yeah, let's do it. So I'm, I'm drawing on a book by James Besson, Learning by Doing. It's a really great book, a little un, under-heralded, but a good book about um, American industrialization in New England, the Rhode Island system, where he talks about textile manufacturing and large-scale production under the factory system in, in the United States and how it came here and how it evolved. Just to remind folks, Samuel Slater had worked in English cotton spinning factories, and he moved to the United States in the early 1800s. It was in the uh, English cities that were proximate to rivers where you had this uh, explosion in automated textile manufacturing um, because it was water powered. And it allowed uh, the automated looms were water powered and it allowed uh, for um, economies of scale. So in in other words, um, a greater production footprint that was automated and where you could be much more productive in terms of getting 
textiles, converting the raw materials, uh, threads and the like into textiles. And um, Samuel Slater was able to smuggle in a sense, a lot of the important technical information, not only about those looms, but also uh, about the way that the factories could be organized. So the spinning machines, the way you would uh, outlay them, the, the way you would um, maybe um, organize workflow, how you would actually train some of the um, factory workers. And so he slips out of England with all this knowledge of, of the of spinning machine design and how you might implement it to be more productive. And that juxtaposed with the uh, cotton gin invented by Eli Whitney is going to improve the efficiency of cotton preparation, thread quality, and speeding expansion. And combine with the stuff uh, that uh, Samuel Slater is going to get in terms of automation from working in English uh, cotton spinning factories, right? And so what does Besson tell us about this Rhode Island system once it came to the United States? He's going to tell us that we are going to see technological innovation that's homegrown, American homegrown, and incredible improvements in labor productivity and wages because of the employment of literate women from, let's say, maybe the New England countryside that are going to pour into these factory towns on uh, the riverbeds or the sides of rivers and are going to, in a sense, not only reproduce what had gone on in, uh, in, in England, but improve it. And the key idea in terms of the improvements in performance, in terms of labor productivity and their interaction with the technology, is that they're going to be able to standardize some of the process innovations and these very intelligent and skillful literate women are going to be the transmission mechanism of the human capital of the knowledge and know-how to spread these innovations throughout the english countryside they why was it important to standardize that sorry why was it important to standardize that well, it's important because it's going to become a general purpose technology, which is where I'm going to head with my idea of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh -huh. It's, And I don't want to tell you yet, I don't want to define a general purpose technology yet, because I want to just finish this idea first about why prosperity Im improves and why their wages go up. And then we'll get into what a general purpose technology is. But in effect, it's something that's standardized and that is going to lead to a multiplier effect when it comes to productivity, not only within the textile industry, but it's going to spill over into other industries. Anything that uses, for example, the factory system and interchangeable parts, machinery to mechanize and automate some of the process, right? What I want to get into, though, with these women and why I want to talk about their productivity and wages before we get into the more structural dynamics of general purpose technologies is that Besson says, well, why do these women end up earning so much more money if so much of what they do is they facilitate automation? And one would think displacement of their own jobs, right? They're the ones that are actually through their know-how and their savvy allowing automation to reach its potential in these textile factories. So one would think they're displacing themselves. 
But what Besson shows in this amazing book is that actually the employment of women in the textile sector and also men explodes, even though automation is improving at this exponentially. And the performance that is facilitated by automation is improving exponentially, right? The productivity gains. And the reason Besson points out this happens is what he coins, and I think he might take this from others, the remainder principle. And this is the idea that technology reduces marginal costs and increases performance on one task in a process and increases the ability to be more efficient with one component in a product and it improve the value added there in that uh, process and in that component of the product but also multiplies the value added of the performance on the remaining tasks and the components more than it did on the initial task and performance. So basically, that's a fancy way of saying the remainder are the intangible human capital wetware type things, not the hardware, not the software, but the wetware, the stuff inside these women's brains, right? Their ability to exploit the know-how by which they uh, help standardize the automated process is going to allow them to be incredibly valuable because they're going to fulfill the last mile in the process, right? They're going to get us to the logical conclusion of the automation and the potential gains from technology by making the machines perform better than if the machines were fully automated by themselves. So they're going to have specific knowledge about how to tie a knot at the end of a process when it comes to textile production, or how to conduct manual operations to find the most efficient movement, like quickly replacing the empty shuttles in the automated uh, process of making the textile. Or they're going to have the technical knowledge acquired through experimentation to know how to adjust the tension on a warp to minimize broken threads or how to coordinate work on multiple looms. The last is very important. They're the last mile in the process. They might have multiple looms going that are fully automated, but the only reason they're able to do that is through coordinating the multiple looms and being able to, let's say, intervene in the process so that if there's any bottleneck or if there's any problem, they can quickly uh, uh, solve it. And so you're going to see an explosion in the wages. Okay, so let me right? just uh, ask you a quick question. Yeah. Um, why is it that in this, like, where is the value coming from? Is the value coming from the fact that the process is partly automated, which allows for much, much cheaper production and um, larger scale production? Yes or to that. That is correct. Yes. Okay, but um, what exactly? Then, yeah. What exactly to the person that owns the company? What is the upside of having these very well-paid workers that uh, that that have some human capital input at the very end of an automated process, as opposed to a fully automated process? Because productivity improvements lead to the ability to reduce your marginal costs, but more importantly, increase the quality of the textiles, therefore shifting out the demand curve for textiles. Okay, okay. When you shift out the demand curve for a good or service, people are willing to pay a higher price and therefore you potentially have higher profits. Mm -hmm. 
Those might be competed away over the long run as other textile manufacturers enter the market, but at least in the short to midterm, you're going to generate some rents, either monopoly rents or Ricardian rents. And when you do that, you're happy because as a capitalist, I suppose you want to uh, maximize profits. Well, and the way to do it is, yeah, the way to do it is to both automate, but also to have skilled human labor that's able to wring out more potential from the automation. Mm-hmm. And the reason value increases for the women, they add more value to the process and value increases in terms of their wages is because you can't have one without the other. All automation depends on human capital, skilled labor to get uh, out the, the potential out of the machines, like, uh, again, coordinating work on multiple automated looms simultaneously, right? This is going to probably relate to um, the fourth industrial revolution. But wouldn't that mean that it then ultimately results in a situation in which a few very high skilled women add a lot of value to the process and thereby command very high wages, as opposed to a different production regime under which a lot more workers would add a lower amount of value and probably command a relatively lower wage, but it would be more workers that are employed in that process. Yeah, that's that's the story of uh, pre-technology, pre-industrialization, where you have limits on technology, right? Right, and so you but have also, to... sorry, but also sort of like less automated production regimes. Well, that's in general, just, right? Another way of saying that, though, just taking it to its logical conclusion, that was the Malthusian economy we were trapped in through most of human history until, um, well, the invention of the automated loom, until the invention of uh, external combustion, like the invention of uh, the automated loom, the invention of the external combustion system, which was anchored by the steam engine. Uh-huh. Uh, and and a bunch of other inventions that we could go uh, uh, through and we might not have time to go through, right? But uh, lack of automation is a technological ceiling. And so therefore, it means that you have a ceiling on your productivity and you also have a ceiling on the value added from human capital, from skilled labor, right? right? So So that's just another way of saying the same thing. Yeah. Now, another thing that I'm not going through is that it, it's not only these women, right, but other folks in the value chain mm-hmm. having to do with textiles are also going to benefit from the larger markets for textiles because there's more producer surplus to distribute. And so they're going to have incentives to also increase productivity to have a larger share of that producer surplus or to have a role in pushing out those demand curves, shifting them out so that they get a little bit of the action as well when it comes to uh, this larger, more uh, uh, revenue um, generating market, right? So it's not a static thing. It doesn't only end with these women, right? And by the way, there's spillovers on the rest of the economy because now we have a consumer market for clothing, Uh, that might pay a lower quality adjusted price for this clothing and therefore has more money to spend on other things. So we'll we'll get a bunch of other markets that are going to blossom outside of textiles, right? Um, So I'm just talking about textiles, but there'll be spillovers on the entire economy because people will have more money to spend on other goods and services, right? That themselves will be automated and also improved technologically through time. How does this relate to uh, the fourth industrial revolution, though? 
Yeah. So what? It, so here's the deal. What? What is the fourth industrial revolution? Right. I think there's a lot of confusion around it. By the way, including myself, like I've been trying to make sense of what this is for a few years now, and mm. I've realized, and I think I'm in agreement with others, that it's actually the combination of four things that are already with us and that have been with us since the computer revolution, the third industrial revolution which is really uh, embodied in the invention of the microprocessor, the computer within the computer, right? Semiconductors in 1971. But the fourth industrial revolution is the combination of four things that are a product of both public policies that led to advances in basic science, in research and development and education, and then pretty vibrant markets on the private side for a lot of goods and services derived in practical terms from these uh, revolutions in science and in technology and in the application of, of skilled labor to that technology, the, the interaction. So what is it? It's first something kind of old school, which is the creation and analysis of big data. And that presupposes big data sets and that presupposes microprocessors that can uh, store a lot of data and process a lot of data. It also is centered, the, the fourth industrial revolution on digital platforms and the pro proliferation of those platforms and a, a business model that's centered on monetizing data. Yeah. The third component is artificial intelligence, especially machine learning and neural networks around uh, the ability to exploit that data. And then the fourth is the Internet of Things, which is a network of devices that are interconnected, that use microprocessors, but that are incredibly cheap and miniaturized, and that improve the performance of artificial intelligence by creating a decentralized approach where there's machines that can learn from each other, or there's a, a network that is independent of human beings, so to speak, yeah. uh, programming the computer to learn, let's say. Those four things together, and we're experiencing their combination now, is the fourth industrial revolution. And to go back to my original statement, the, the thesis that we launched today's yeah. episode uh, with, this is unlimited potential. And it's incredible to think about what could happen in, in my mind when you combine these things and you reach uh, the maturation of, of markets that create goods and services, um, and, and therefore the productivity potential too. Uh, around uh, these applications. Yeah, so I must say, um, there are obviously a lot of people that are a bit skeptical, especially of the economic effects that these changes will bring. Let's maybe not get too specific just yet. And let me ask you to try to elaborate on how exactly this industrial revolution is unfolding at the moment. So you're speaking of these four different areas. How do they interrelate? This goes back to IT's the idea that standardization was important to American industrialization. I mentioned something like the external combustion allowed by the steam engine, then later it'll be electricity in the internal combustion engine for the second industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. And then for the third, it'll be the microprocessor. All of these things are general purpose technologies, and so are the technologies around the fourth industrial revolution. And so it's important to understand what a general purpose technology is for us to go forward, right? And the idea here, not only text, the textile example, and especially the steam engine and uh, electricity and, and the microprocessor, these are all groundbreaking technological 
innovations, their breakthroughs, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is they're improved upon over time. Standardization allows that to happen within the industries and across industries. And a lot of that is that they're based on standards and platforms. The third is that they're pervasive. There are many applications with a broad diffusion across the economy. The fourth is that they spawn complementary innovations. And then the fifth is that they impact the entire economy. And that is true across the industrial revolutions and especially for the fourth, because I would say that the fourth industrial revolution is a general purpose technology on steroids, especially the internet of things and the ability to multiply the potential of artificial intelligence. Okay. And, and let me, do you want an example perhaps or a couple? Um, yeah, why not? I think that's always good. Driverless cars, let's start with that. What is the immense potential there, right? First of all, it's going to liberate time. So first Think of, of all, all the could yeah. you, um, in what way is a driverless car um, an example or application of, you know, the four things that you mentioned, big data sets, uh, digital platforms, artificial intelligence, and Internet of Things? Well, okay, let me then tell you exactly what it is that the, fourth industrial revolution does in combining yeah. some of these other uh, general purpose technologies or some of these pre-existing uh, um, ways of doing things, markets, et cetera. Maybe that'll be a good way to get us started. And then I'll go into what um, driverless cars do in terms of their potential. Right? Okay. But basically the idea here is that you're going to combine several different things together. And the first is going to be the microprocessing abilities, the performance of the chips in the cars. The second thing is that you're going to use platforms. And this involves platforms in terms of hardware and software. So not only the... Um, platforms that allow the uh, car to communicate with other cars or to communicate with the network, but also some of the applications that you will uh, be able to utilize in the cars that are going to be digital platforms. You're going to have a lot of interoperability, not only with hard hardware, but also software, which is going to be one of the huge things in terms of standardization and in terms of the uh, ability to exploit uh, the car as a platform. You're going to have, as well, artificial intelligence uh, within the car and the car's communication with other cars. And then the Internet of Things will be another part of that driverless car, where uh, you're going to have the car communicate with other cars. You're going to have the car maybe communicate with pedestrians that are wearing smart clothing or other smart devices. And the car is going to communicate maybe with a smart city and a network by which some of the infrastructure will be connected to the network and therefore will be able to communicate with the cars, be it um, the streets or even some of the buildings. So vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to pedestrians, vehicle to network, with the network maybe including infrastructure. And the car might also communicate with the manufacturer and alert it. To, to produce new spare parts or something like that. Absolutely. And let me tell you what this means. What am I saying when I say all this stuff? This is an embedded system plus a platform. 
And what I mean by that, it's a, a market where there is five things going on. And that's what makes it incredibly promising and exciting. This is where the fourth industrial revolution is different from some of the standardization and even some of the platforms that occurred for the other three industrial revolutions. These five steps are a bit different. Let me tell you what the steps are. The first step is sensing and data collection. And this is all based on very cheap sensors that might run on uh, battery technology that allows them to be pretty um, self-sustaining, okay? That you can embed in things or even people, be, be they smart devices or some people think biologically at some point, right? And so you put these sensors on machines, on cars, on patients, let's say if they're sick in their pacemaker, let's say if they have a heart condition and they collect data, right? They sense and collect data. The second part of this is communication and standards, you have a common language through standardization where this data is fungible and interoperable with each other. That's the second step. The third step is the integration of the data by having a platform that can process, store, and integrate the data. The fourth step, now I'm getting into artificial intelligence, is analyzing the data and learning from it over time, which is pretty exciting once you do sensing and collection, communication, and integration. And maybe the most exciting thing is the action step number five, where the platform sends the information or instructions, and then it compels other parts of the network to respond, whether they be humans or machines. That is the secret to the fourth industrial revolution in terms of the embedded system plus platform, the standardization that is interoperable and that allows you to exploit the best parts of the microprocessor revolution, which is processing and performance with artificial intelligence and the network potential of the communication between devices and then human device interactions, right? The idea would then be, as you alluded to earlier, that there is an enormous potential here to deliver goods and services cheaper, better, better quality. You could significantly a streamline even further supply chains. You could deliver certain services possibly a lot better. We'd be interested in, in hearing what specific services you feel that could be improved through services. Perfect. Like Let me go back to the car then as a touchstone here. Okay. All right, okay. So I mentioned liberating time. Okay. So when you're in the car, uh, the average American before COVID at least spent 101 minutes per day driving. That's uh -huh. valued at $7,000 a year if you uh, do some surveys or if you think of the opportunity cost of that time, right? So what are you going to do in that car with that time? Well, you're going to work or you're going to do entertainment or you're going to do something else where there's potential for new markets, right? And so you might have a new business model of the car as a service or an experience, right? So that's most immediately what might happen where you have Uber with electric driverless cars where people lease the car but don't own the car and you've transformed what could happen in the car with entertainment. It could be in, including augmented reality. It could be a, a more quotidian two-dimensional stuff with digital platforms. It could be stuff we can't even imagine yet because the entrepreneurs haven't exploited this yet, right? Or in terms of a business experience. Or some might even think in terms of lodging, let's say you could displace motels on, on the roadside if you're going 
on a cross-country trip. You just sleep in the car. Now, let's think about some other things. The car itself, there'll be a new vehicle design when you can get rid of the cockpit and you can get rid of the way that you have to put the engine in there and the rest of the uh, stuff that makes the car go because someone's driving the car. And especially if we get electrification displacing the internal combustion engine, we can reimagine the car in terms of its dimensions. And, and then you're gonna get higher quality cars that are safer, faster, and more energy efficient. Now let's think about other things like the larger economy. You're gonna get the location of economic activities going to change because you don't have to have the infrastructure accommodate, let's say gas stations or parking or the size of cars the way they are now or human drivers with all their fallibility and, and the problems we have with human drivers needing to brake and do whatever they need to do uh, versus super fast cars that are communicating with each other. So our, our cityscapes might change in the way we locate economic activity, be it retail, be it production, uh, obviously uh, the infrastructure that supports cars like gas stations, right? Yeah. Let's also think about the infrastructure. The infrastructure's productivity is going to improve in its value added in terms of reducing distances between vehicles, in terms of delays at traffic signals, in terms of the frequency of braking speed changes. Increasing speed, I mentioned, means you can carry more vehicles, maybe heavier vehicles or vehicles that are performing different things. And then finally, as you mentioned in your question, logistics. Autonomous trucks are going to change the game when it comes to the supply chain, when, it, when, it, when you think about storage in warehouses, when you think about dock to uh, warehouse um, interactions, when it comes to international trade, when it comes from, to warehouses to retail distribution. Right. And this is just driverless cars, Nick. This is only one little piece of the puzzle. Exactly, which is about, uh, ironically, I think also where a lot of people's concern are coming in. I think, um, I didn't know this, but um, trucking is actually the modal job category in uh, several states in the US. Mm -hmm. I might be wrong. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've heard this recently. I was very surprised. Um, so obviously, um, this then brings us back to the uh, concern of, well, what are they, all these people going to work, right, that are being displaced by these technologies in some way? But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, let me give you the space to to finish telling the story about the uh, economic potential of this revolution. Well, well, no, I think this is an important point. I, I okay. think you bring up a good point. Let's remember James Besson's book, Learning by Doing, and the remainder principle, and these really uh, uh, skilled girls that were literate, maybe learned to read by reading the Bible, these Protestant girls that are leaving the countryside and, and, and agglomerating in these textile towns, right? Remember that the value added at the last step of the process increases more than the value added before that, right? The last mile, let's say. These women were able to coordinate or uh, bring out more efficiency out of the automation, out of the machines, because of their know-how and their human capital, right? So yeah. let's think about truck drivers, okay? I'm thinking about Uber drivers. Okay, are, let's think are, about are they, are they currently paid in a way that reflects what you're just um, describing? No, because they're not exploiting the uh, technology yet the way they could. Okay. okay? But, but I want to talk about truck drivers because not... you brought up truck drivers right. first. So let's okay. talk about truck drivers, right? 
One could imagine that the know-how they've accumulated through truck driving and the skills that they have in their literacy when it comes to driving, in their literacy when it comes to driving the truck, literacy broadly construed, right? Uh Might combine with the artificial intelligence and the automation to wring a lot of value out of this, right? One could think of them working on the distribution side some more in terms of the logistics, in terms of helping the AI perform to its maximum. And one could think about certain obstacles to the AI where you can't fully automate. It's not totally driverless at every part of that network, right? And therefore, that's where there's a premium on driving the truck. So you might imagine even more truck drivers than we've ever had. Because you're shifting out the demand curve for goods and services, and therefore, you you have higher quantity of goods and services, and therefore, more truck drivers on the supply chain, right? This is what happened with textiles. Not, yeah. not, not forever. A lot of it shifted overseas eventually in the textile sector in the U.S. shrunk. So it doesn't mean forever, but it means enough in the short and the midterm that it's going to be just fine. Just the way it was for during other industrial revolutions. Of course, there will be people displaced like there always will be, and I'm not minimizing their pain. If we had a better social safety net and a smarter and more efficient government that did better things, Things on with public policy, these folks would be retrained, upskilled, re-educated, and the like. I'm not gainsaying those concerns. But as a big picture idea here, if you think of the remainder principle, it has operated across every industrial revolution, including computers. Uh, and I've mentioned on prior podcasts also, uh, I did not coin this example, but I've gotten it from others, the ATM, the automated teller machine. There are more bank tellers now than there ever was before, even though ostensibly taking cash out of the bank is automated. It reduced the cost of opening new branches and it changed the complexion of the, the job. So these tellers have more human capital. They're doing the remainder principle stuff, just like these girls did under the Rhode Island uh, textile system in in new England uh, in the early uh, 1800s, right? You said it's obviously not just um, driverless cars that we're talking about here, but a lot of other different things. Um, It appears to me still that this is mostly creating opportunities, uh, possibly fewer opportunities for higher skilled individuals. And um, we had uh, Carlos Bosch on the podcast uh, previously speaking about some of the same uh, dynamics and what their political implications might be. Um, but it does appear, and I think this is, again, right, I'm, I'm not the only one saying this, that there seems to be a general um, tendency towards employing more uh, high-skill labor in, in these efforts. Does that worry you? Do you feel like there are countervailing tendencies that will alleviate that? Or um, is there a need for a general upskilling of, of just everyone? I think the upskilling is happening as the technology has diffused such that folks that are maybe labeled non-skilled today are incredibly skilled, but we just don't recognize it. And their ability to use digital platforms, their ability to use computers, their ability to interact with technology. What's still lacking is the standardization of some of this technology to make it interoperable and to exploit 
the system the way, let's say, Besson discussed exploiting these women in the Rhode Island system, where once things were standardized, they were able to act as the diffusion nodes across factories when they were hired from factory to factory. So that's still missing. But I'm not worried at all because I think what happens, there are incentives for people to become skilled in ways we might not recognize, but in ways that make them more skilled, right? Uh And this skilling is happening across the economy. As people do something as innocuous as interact with TikTok or digital platforms, and as they're software literate and hardware literate. Let me go back to the economic potential, then we could talk about skill and upskill and and low skill or whatever. Well, I I want to push back on the economic potential after you- um, After I tell you what it is? Exactly. Okay, new goods and services. Once this stuff is standardized and interoperable and we have an an entire network built on the internet of things, Mm -hmm. okay? Higher quality goods and services. I mentioned the car and the car is a service and the car is a vehicle and rethinking cities. That was just one example. I could come up with several others. Remember that was just one of many. Lower prices for stuff, which means People have more money in their pockets, which drives demand for even more goods and services. Better health and education outcomes. Imagine remote surgery that occurs uh, with the aid of artificial intelligence, but most importantly, a 5G network and the Internet of Things where a surgeon in New York City can operate on a boy in Sri Lanka that maybe has a heart condition with some very skilled surgeons in Sri Lanka, but maybe helping them. the machines in in Sri Lanka are operated remotely by the surgeon in New York with help from the surgeons in Sri Lanka, right? So we might think of the global impact of this stuff, right? Or we might think about better health outcomes with the monitoring of data on a host of outcomes and artificial intelligence allowing us to have early detection and better therapeutics for a lot of disease, right? Higher incomes and living standards happen when you have new goods and services and higher quality goods and services and lower prices, especially because that's all based on productivity improvements. Better environmental quality with these sensors being able to monitor in real time real outcomes and having artificial intelligence help us make better decisions about how to manage the environment. And obviously with driverless cars, if it's all about electric and we can get to renewables or better nuclear, we're going to be able to better phase out fossil fuels. And then with a larger government, a larger economy, with a more productive and larger economy, you could have, if it's a smart government, more public goods, better social insurance and a better safety net, and maybe even more redistribution that equalizes outcomes. Nobody says that the government has to be stupid. You could have something like the Swedish government, which has exploited innovation to have a state-of-the-art safety net and has decided to equalize outcomes with more aggressive retribution. Hmm. So this is the better world I'm looking forward to. I'm really excited about it. I hope others are too. Um, I'm, I'm definitely um, excited about the world you're describing. I'm just not convinced uh, uh-huh. yet. that, that this is <laughs> Well, I'm the... glad you are. That's what I, I love, friendly skeptics, or even unfriendly. Uh, yeah, I, I'm both, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but... Um... Uh, it just seems to me that what you're telling is a story that is um, strongly focused on the technology itself, um, mm-hmm. not so much on, um, you know, there are certain political choices that need to be made or um, anything like that, which is fine, right? Um, I, 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 
like you don't have to um obviously i mean you you started this uh, episode by saying you're making certain assumptions um certain decisions or certain investment decisions especially need to be made in a certain way um mm -hmm. but i would want to know what exactly is it are there already present examples of these developments um that you can point to that would make me more optimistic because it seems to me that um we have seen enormous technological advancement in amazing areas and mm -hmm. um I'm going to now make myself a lot more skeptical than I actually am, but uh, just for the sake of conversation, I would say uh, what we've seen primarily is um, an enormous expansion of consumer electronics, um, but not nearly as much progress on things that I would uh, consider to be much more fundamental, right? So we have, you know, we have supercomputers in our pockets, um, but cannot afford buying homes in the areas that people actually want to live, right? We uh, a lot of people are um, at least sort of when you ask them in service arguing that they're not starting families because they feel like they can't afford them. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet we have TikTok. So um, I guess that's mm -hmm. a trade-off. You know, people are in deep student loan debt. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I think again, in this conversation, we're saying, well, we, what we need is not necessarily upskilling, but we need, um, which I agree with you. I think that's the wrong framing. It's, it's more about a reskilling. It's more about um, you, you need to adjust the skills or the technology for that matter maybe you need to do it the other way around to uh, to match uh, people into what the new demands are to be productive um, mm -hmm. in, in a new economy but uh, ultimately right i mean a lot of people uh, a lot of young people you know they work very long hours for for pay that is relatively me mediocre what, what are the signs of the of this utopia that you're describing here that i'm missing well we could go through Goods and services and their quality adjusted prices, you alluded to that. Portable computers in quality adjusted terms have sit between 97 and 2013. They were reduced by 99%. Now everyone has a supercomputer in their pockets. The average price of a phone is about $420, I believe. Uh, we could look at flat screen Flat screen televisions in the same time period, a reduction in cost by 90%. Now everyone has a flat screen television. They've become a com uh, commodity, right? Video equipment, audio equipment, telephone equipment. Also, uh, mainframe supercomputers have reduced in price because of the increased performance of microprocessors. So, okay, maybe people don't like cheaper goods and services, but these cheaper goods and services make people more productive and have created new markets like the gig economy and the like. Uh, and they've also improved existing markets by diffusing technologies and making people more productive in different industries. But you, you mentioned, hold on, give me a second. You mentioned uh, homes. Zoning uh, policies are incredibly restrictive. A lot of that ostensibly is about environmental protection, but often it's about NIMBYism. That has nothing to do with technology and everything to do with homeowners that want uh, appreciation of the price of their home. So they get together and they capture the city government or maybe through some other policies, they impose zoning restrictions. Uh, I mean, that's just the problem of politics and NIMBYism. And uh, maybe there's a political solution to that, but there's also perhaps a technological solution where the cost of construction might go down. If we could automate construction with something like three homes that are a product of 3D printing or something like that, or better supply chain. Or Zoom could make it 
possible to no longer need to actually live in certain areas to work. That's there. already happening. People are spreading out to cheaper places. So they're arbitraging, they're, they're making incomes, let's say in San Francisco or Seattle, but they're moving to the outskirts, exactly. to the periphery, to other states, right? And that's increasingly happening. And I've looked at data that shows that there's more uh, mobility uh, in, in terms of uh, people moving to these places than ever, right? Uh, or mm -hmm. since we've uh, uh, looked at the data, had the data. What else did you mention? You mentioned something else. Oh, student loans. So maybe we'll have a disruption of higher education. Barriers to entry will come down. Maybe technology will help. Maybe artificial intelligence can help. Not only Zoom, but artificial intelligence or the Internet of Things that already ha uh, is happening a bit after the pandemic. And that might happen. But with student loans in particular, you could get different business models that are based on making venture capital investments in people where the investor benefits on the upside. And we had a podcast with you and Morgan yeah. on this, right, where you make a bet on someone and you get a portion of their uh, future income stream rather than loan them money. Right. An asset based model. Right. right. Or you could uh, significantly reduce tuition costs or you could create different uh, education avenues. I mean, you mentioned this. Absolutely. It's still early. The fourth industrial yeah. revolution is a baby in the crib. It really it is. Took, but it also took the on... other revolution 70 years to reach their potential. It took electricity yeah. about 70 years to reach its potential in terms of productivity, new markets, automation and manufacturing plants, higher wages to the extent to which you could really exploit the new technology, which is the diffusion of widespread cheap electricity, right? And it took yeah. a lot of infrastructure. It's going to take a lot of infrastructure for, for this stuff too. Absolutely, right? And I think ultimately, you're probably right. You're making a very convincing case, especially if you take a little bit um, longer historical view. I think there's an important political dimension, but we can discuss that next time. But I will say, right, that a lot of these uh, things that you're describing, really, the technology may already be there, but for these to actually materialize and actually change people's lives, you need um, you need profitable business models. And um, you know, if if you look at Uber, for example, Uber is not profitable. Uber is a really interesting, currently heralded as as, as maybe part of what you're, of, of the revolution that you're describing. But it's a company that is only able to sustain itself because uh, of these massive injections of capital from venture capital funds that don't really have anything else to invest in. It's a business model that is not clear that it will ever be profitable. And um, that there, I think, is, is where I'm a little bit worried, where I, I see all of these amazing technologies that you're describing. But so far, at least, it's not clear to me how you're going to actually make this profitable to deploy them. On, on the scale that is necessary to, to have a lot of these things that you're describing to materialize? Well, the magic of the market and creative destruction is that we don't have to worry about any individual firm. Mm -hmm. We don't understand necessarily what the winning business model will be, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. If you think about the third industrial revolution, there were all these companies that tried their hand at computers and they failed. They were based on vacuum tubes instead of microprocessors. Uh, before the semiconductor uh, uh, developments that led to the miniaturization of a computer within a computer. Uh, there were many business models that were tried, uh, like uh, IBM's renting mainframes out or using it more as a service where they would uh, maybe sell the mainframe but license some of their expertise. And they were disrupted by Apple 
and by personal computers and eventually by smartphones. Right. And IBM, with all due respect, it's a great company, but it's not really a trendsetter anymore, even though it was because at first it produced the uh, personal computers that competed with the Apple II and the other per personal computers that came out of the uh, out of Apple. But what we learned is that the value added was in the software. So it was Microsoft that eventually generated most of the value add in the, on that supply chain, right? Um, we might think of other social networks like Friendster and like uh, MySpace. And then there was a second mover advantage that Facebook had. It could mm -hmm. be that with virtual reality and the metaverse, Facebook has a first mover advantage, but it'll be the second mover advantage that actually triumphs. Because another company that has yet to be born will be able to look at what Facebook does and learn from its mistakes, right? When it comes yeah. to the semiconductors itself, there were a lot of firms that were early to the game, including Texas Instruments, including Intel, which now has fallen behind because we've gotten to the point with semiconductors where if you're making chips that are specialized to AI, you're doing better. That would be the ARM Corporation and uh, the UK, or it would be Apple itself that is now integrated up the supply chain and is making its own chips that have higher performance than the Intel chips. I'm not crying a river over Intel. I'm very happy to its contributions. A lot of them, no, of them Nobel Prize winning to the creation of the microprocessor and its diffusion, but now the torch might have been passed to other firms. You know, that's what capitalism is all about. It's not about any one firm. It's about the markets. It's about the innovation, right? Right. So to, I guess I'm not going to cry over Uber tonight is what I'm trying to tell you. Neither should you. <laughs> yeah. But to sum up, right, I mean, you're suggesting that the interaction of these novel technologies does constitute a qualitative break from the past. And it's going to allow effectively the creation of new markets that allow um, the creation of new uh, value to consumers, of course. But that's also going to allow workers to share in whatever profits these new companies make in servicing those new markets. And they're going to be uh, revolving around what you described, which was yeah, ultimately on the basis being big data sets, digital platforms, artificial intelligence, and the internet of things. Obviously, I think these can deliver tremendous value along the lines of these ideas that you've sketched out. And if they're indeed able to deliver that, then then I think it's, it's plausible to say that this would indeed tremendously um, one thing that we've, I feel like, forgotten to stress is that obviously everyone would tremendously benefit from these things as consumers, um, but yes. also, but also because of some of the dynamics that you're um, saying, but also just because of the fact that if you create new markets, you create new demand for people to service these markets. And although these may look like products that are extremely technology intensive, it's still going to take a lot of people to to produce those goods or service, whatever they may be, and that's going to imply at least the possibility of um, a significant share of labor in whatever that uh, surplus is that is being created on the producer side. Well, let's go through an example. The yeah. AT&T Corporation, which was the telephone monopoly until they were broken up by the Department of Justice, had the patent on the transistor and the manufacturing process to produce it. And it licensed that technology broadly, but it made a pretty penny out of the fact that it was the first mover in the switch from vacuum tube mainframe computers to computers that used uh, semiconductors, right? That used integrated circuits and then microprocessors, right? Texas Instruments was also a big firm that uh, manufactured silicon-based transistors 
first for missiles, then for radios, then for calculators. Okay, they had a bunch of patents around this too, and they did pretty well, especially when they were able to get the Japanese to pay royalties on these patents, right? One of the uh, companies that they licensed a patent to was Moss Technology, MOS, in 1969, and they're going to start designing uh, chips uh, that are going to go into the first Apple uh, II personal computers, an 8-bit chip. Uh, it was called the MS6502. So in the supply chain of the personal computers, they're going to do pretty well. Uh, Apple's going to do pretty well. And later, when IBM competes with Apple, software, manu uh, software makers are going to do pretty well, like um, Microsoft, right? I explained that process when it came to the PC, right? Yeah. The cost of an Apple II uh, was $1,298 in 1977. That's roughly $5,543 today. Now a personal computer is basically free, to be honest with you. Okay. So, okay, th that's the goods and services. Fine. Maybe people don't want to pay less money for an, a supercomputer in their pocket. Okay. And maybe people don't care that at first it was AT&T and then it was Texas Instruments. Then it's going to be... Intel that produces the chips, at least for the PC, and then Microsoft is going to be very important, and IBM is going to kind of be left in the lurch. So it'll be Intel and Microsoft that do really well in the 90s and early 2000s, right? And now it's Apple, and now it's uh, Google and Android because it's become a platform on a smartphone, right? But let's think about the actual users, okay? Imagine going from a typewriter to a person computer that you can buy for pennies on the dollar, basically, in any line of work and what it's going to do for you and your business, okay? Imagine you're a repair person for a computer and you have spreadsheets now and you have QuickBooks and you have word processing. And now it's on your phone, but let's just go to the personal computer, right? You're going to be much more productive. You're going to maybe have a larger market you can service, right? Mm. Think about someone that's creative, like uh, someone writing a screenplay. Think about yourself when you write a paper for your dissertation, mm -hmm. how much more efficient, how much greater performance you'll have. Think about the fact that on these microprocessors that use artificial intelligence, that are specialized to artificial intelligence, you'll be able to use machine learning and text analysis to do some of the analysis for your dissertation, right? Rather than wait for a mainframe computer to like do the uh, inversion of the matrix on a regression, it's gonna take three days and you can only do a bivariate uh, uh, or a multivariate regression with one control variable. Now multiply that across an economy, across every industry, across every occupation. There's a reason why per capita income in the United States is sitting around $62,500 today. You know, it's doubled in the last 20 years again, after doubling throughout the history of industrialization in the United States several times. Does that help answer the question? I don't know. I mean, there's the proof for the other, the third industrial revolution. No, I think that makes sense. So I think what people want to know is what specifically needs to happen now, what needs to be done. And beyond, you know, what people typically hear of, oh, well, we need some in, uh, investment in education or something super vague like that. If you say that this is a possibility and put potentially people would agree that it's a desirable one. What needs to be what needs to happen for us to get there? Right. I think in, in general, this sounds like a, a promising 
future, there are some concerns around data privacy and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, right, I mean, that's not really an insurmountable problem. The question is more clearly there are tremendous upsides to the idea of having fridge that self-repairs by communicating with its manufacturer or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, that sounds pretty cool. And um, there's tremendous uh, opportunity in um, being much more resource efficient, which is going to use resources in a way that is much more efficient, allowing us to ultimately have much less of an impact on the ecology of the planet and, and live greener. It's going to and it's going to then open up a lot of new markets, very high value markets uh, to be added from from workers. So it's, it's going to allow people to share in um, the wealth that is being created. But as you say, it, this is not, this doesn't just happen automatically. There's no inherent law of nature that's going to force us into that direction necessarily. And the question then really is, okay, sure, you say uh, incomes have doubled in the last uh, 20 years, right? But I mean, a lot of people are arguing that the US is facing significant headwinds in, in terms of uh, for not, not just further productivity growth, but also a further inclusive economic advancement. So, so how, how can we make this work? Let me stick to the size of the pie instead of its distribution. I already told you why, due to the remainder principle, productivity enhancements associated with automation are good for workers. Yeah. So insofar as they diffuse through the economy because they're standardized, that's a big key. Yeah. Uh, we could have another podcast if you want on how some countries have better safety nets and are better at public investments and better at cool. uh, securing against risk. But let's just talk about the size of the pie and what that entails in terms of public policy and, and what are some things that have to happen. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. And then we could get into Scandinavian welfare states, some other. I love that topic, but it just seems a little bit tangential. Okay. Um, and okay, so let's think historically again. Let's think about the third industrial revolution, the microprocessor revolution, which was based on Moore's law. This is the idea that roughly every two years, the number of transistors on the same surface area double, and so therefore does the performance of a chip, and so therefore does the quality or the what you get from the product for every dollar, right? It's doubling every two years, okay? Well, as you said, that didn't come from nowhere, right? That's not mana from heaven. That was the combination of public policy and markets combining, okay? Let's think about the public policies, and then we'll get into the markets, and then we can get into what's needed for the fourth industrial revolution, or the fifth, if you will, if the fourth is already baked, right? So if you think about World War II, first of all, the US government's role in the economy tripled in the span of a few years when it comes to income taxation, when it comes to spending, and when it comes to especially R&D and basic science. In terms of R&D, the government itself and the military were involved with corporations and universities to crack encrypted messages that were being uh, used by the Nazis uh, and to develop the H-bomb. So they needed a lot of computer power and they were using vacuum to computers and they were using punch cards and mainframes, but they were plowing billions of dollars in our money into these things to uh, as fast as possible in basically a race to be the first to do this against their enemies. 
After World War II lets out, the U.S. government is pumping out billions and billions of dollars. A huge portion of our GDP, if you think about it in relative terms, into grants for basic science and basic research around radars, lasers, semiconductors, electrical engineering, computer science, and quantum mechanics, because semiconductors are based on quantum mechanics. We've got military-funded and government-funded research labs all around the country that were involved in the development of radar, air defense systems, missile systems that use precision-guided weapons, and the space race to get Americans to the moon. And the idea was to miniaturize this stuff and to use semiconductors so that you could put it on missile cones or you could put it on spacecraft that are headed to the moon. And so you've got government not only supporting the research and the R&D during World War II in particular, but government procurement buying up the products that led to economies of scale for transistors and semiconductors. Another thing the government did for to get to the internet phase of this and the latter stages of this revolution, when you think of the digital economy and digital platforms, was the internet. And it's the fact that the government subsidized the internet in terms of creating, basically, DARPA created the network of university computers that were interconnected and a lot of basic research around that. And another thing it did is it supported standards. And that's where I want to get into the fourth industrial revolution. The government was huge when it came uh, first DARPA and then the NSF to codifying the standards that allowed for data and communications and the plumbing of the internet to be interoperable and to create a huge network. Those would be uh, standards around the TCP IP software protocol, which uh, allows computers to communicate with each other. The HTML hypertext markup language, a common tongue for all internet data. HTTP, which is the hypertext transfer protocol, which is a platform to share the new language. The URL system of uh, addresses to get information to the right place on what was called the cyberspace or the information superhighway, right? Uh, pretty old school and corny language to describe it, but that's what they were trying to get at by creating that standard or codifying it. And then obviously the World Wide Web, which is the way that you created portals to browse and uh, use the information outside of the university system. So. Uh, a lot of this was based in Switzerland. Uh, it came out of CERN, which is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. It wasn't necessarily the U.S. government coming up with the standards, but it was the it was U.S. government efforts to help codify the standards and spread the standards. And the eventual result of that was the internet. So if we think about today and we think about how can we get to the exploit the potential of the Fifth uh, of the fourth industrial revolution or create the potential for the fourth at least, a lot of that will have to do with standards and interoperability. Some of it is going to have to do with the government getting out of the way and allowing this to happen in a voluntary way, the way let's say 4G standards were devised for the 4G network, um, where private firms coordinated the technology development, set the standards, and then they coordinated their R&D around the standards and decided what the network would, would be like, who the device makers would be that were uh, key to the standard, what kind of software would be used, what kind of cloud servers would be used, what kind of microprocessors would be used, how they would interact, including the modems and the phones and, and all that, uh, uh, and so on and so forth, right? 
that might happen for the 5G network, but a lot of the 5G network is going to be about government infrastructure in spreading that network far and wide in zoning laws because for the 5G spectrum, you're using parts of the radio uh, frequency that are way out there. Uh, let's say um, above 30 uh, gigahertz up to 300 gigahertz. So you're going to have to auction off parts of that uh, part of the radio spectrum, but also build out or at least allow for the build out of the infrastructure the way China, for example, has centralized it, right? In the US, it's going to happen in a decentralized way, but the government's going to have to help figure things out and maybe subsidize this and maybe do some of it itself the way it did for, let's say, electricity or the radio back in the 19-teens and 20s and 30s. Right? So I think public infrastructure is going to be huge to allow this to reach its full potential. And that's just on infrastructure. If you think about the R&D in terms of artificial intelligence to keep Moore's law going and to underwrite artificial intelligence, you're going to need a lot of R&D, and a lot of that might be subsidies by the government, if not the government getting involved through mili the military the way it did, let's say, during World War II or during the Cold War. But the most important thing is basic science and education and STEM. That's where I feel if we're going to reach the full potential, we have to take the playbook from the third industrial revolution, which is the state was very much involved it was involved in basic science through the university system and by the NSF giving very generous grants to scientists that were doing electrical engineering, computer engineering, semiconductors, quantum mechanics, physics, chemistry, and the like. And then with the GI Bill, with the public education system, with subsidies to universities, with improvements in higher education and tertiary education, that's when you really exploited the potential of this. And by the way, an immigration system that was open to foreign engineers and foreign human capital, beginning with the Jewish diaspora, many of them Hungarian refugees that later were critical parts of some of the key companies, like let's say Intel or Apple. Uh, so very, very practically speaking, a lot of very smart people with very uh, high scientific credentials uh, part of, uh, of the commercialization of this stuff. So it definitely, this is not a story about cowboy capitalism. It's a story of the state being really smart and making a lot of investments. And it could be, like I said at the beginning, doubling or tripling the amount of investments in basic science and supporting R&D publicly or creating a lot of incentives for private R&D when it comes to the tax system, when it comes to other uh, policies that could uh, encourage uh, uh, entrepreneurs to keep plowing money into R&D. And a lot of the digital platforms, I give them credit, have been doing that. Amazon, Facebook, now know, known as Meta, Google, because they know that the future is artificial intelligence and all, and, and the internet of things, uh, especially Amazon, if you think of the logistics I talked about with the distribution. Uh, in the supply chain from, uh, let's say, um, ports, warehouse to retail, right? And to final mm -hmm. cons consumer, right? Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long.
a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.